People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. My guest this week is Anthony Fabian, who is an award-winning director of feature films, documentaries, commercials, and shorts. And in fact, you may know Anthony from his first feature film, Skin, which was made by the company he founded in 1993, Elysian Films. And that film went on to win 22 international awards. And apparently the legendary American critic Roger Ebert called it one of the best films of the year. Anthony has shot an eight-part documentary series for Sky Arts called British Legends of Stage and Screen. And listen to these names. Sir Derek Jacobi, Claire Boom, Sir Christopher Lee, Michael York, Glenda Jackson, the names go on. But his first documentary, Township Opera, from 2001, features emerging talent from South Africa. And there is a strong South African link, as we're going to discover. Anthony Fabian, welcome. Welcome to People of Note. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. You come, as I gather, a few times, don't you, because you're quite busy in South Africa at the moment. There are lots we want to talk about, but why are you here just at the moment? Just at the moment, I'm busy starting production again on a documentary project called Good Hope. It's a project I've been working on off and on for the last 18 months, and it's a featured documentary, in other words, a feature-length documentary for the cinema, a state-of-the-nation film about South Africa, its current crisis of confidence, and what the next generation of South Africans are doing to tackle the problems of this country. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the obvious question to ask you, since you're London-based, is you seem to have an incredible interest in South Africa and in the politics here, and indeed in the well-being of the people. Where did that come from? How did your South African link begin? The link began very simply with a listening to the radio, BBC Radio 4, one morning, and an interview with a woman called Sandra Lang, who was a coloured girl born to white Africana parents in 1955 in the Eastern Transvaal. You might say, how did that happen? She was what's now known as a genetic throwback. So her parents were not aware that they had black ancestry and emerged this cuddle-looking child. Of course, you might imagine what the father thought, etc., but he did accept her as his own child and sent her to the all-white boarding school nearby. And she was then reclassified and expelled from that school, and the father then had to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court to prove that she was white on the basis that his wife and he were white. So it was a, a really crazy story that I thought wonderfully illustrated the insanity of the architecture of apartheid, the whole classification system. And it was a way of telling that story through the prism of just this one family that sat on the fault lines of that mm -hmm. system. It was, and I think I read somewhere that you said apartheid was a remarkably complex system because, in a sense, it worked so well, tragically well. Mm. Did you have to do a lot of homework coming to South Africa. Absolutely. I mean, you cannot tell a story like Skin, which is what the film ended up being. We made a feature film based on that story that I heard without really getting to grips with the history of this country and the culture of this country. And as you say, it's enormously complex because you have so many different cultures coexisting here. And, you know, in my naivety, I suppose I didn't understand. I thought, you know, it was whites and blacks, but it's not. It's what kind of white person? Are you an Afrikaner? Are you of English descent? Are you of Huguenot descent, etc.? What kind of black person? What tribe do you belong to? And the term colored is not one that we use in Europe or in America. So I had to come to grips with that as well. So really to do the story justice, I had to immerse myself in the culture. And that answers your question, mm. why the country has become so important to me. I have adopted it. <laughs> as a second country and I feel enormous affection for it and um, distress for it sometimes as well. Well, I was going to say distress because you are seeing in working on a film like Skin, you're seeing the sort of belly, the ugly underbelly of apartheid and the results of apartheid. So did that not put you off and make you want to go running back to the sanctity of England? Uh, no, because I think fortunately by the time I found the story apartheid had ended, it hadn't been long. In fact, I first heard the story in 2000. So it, was, it had only been six years since the first free elections. 
And the story that we've chosen to tell starts in 1966 and ends in 1994. So it's a good span, and that was a big challenge in terms of telling a story that spans so many years. But by the time I came to South Africa, it was the new South Africa, and there was no better embodiment of that than what I found when I made the documentary Township Opera, which was the first film I made in this country. We have lots to talk about, all these things, that Township Opera, which I mentioned there, as well as numerous other things you're doing and the project you're working on at the moment, a Good Hope. But let's go to music, and I know music, classical music, has featured very, very prominently in your life. What is your first choice? The first choice I've made is a rather unusual composer called Charles Valentin Alcan. He was a 19th century uh, French composer, pianist, Jewish as well. And he he's a contemporary of Chopin and Liszt, but he's not as well known as those composers. And I came across him by accident, really. I had made a short film called Bach and Variations, which was... Uh, essentially using the structure of the Goldberg variations to tell a narrative drama, sort of romantic triangle between three characters. And that film did well at festivals and caught the attention of the head of marketing at Decca Records, who then asked me to come in and make a music video for them. The age of classical music videos had just begun in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. And they had a young pianist called Olli Mustanen, and he was recording uh, Prokofiev Vision Fugitive. So that was my first music video. And in getting to know Oli's repertoire, I came across this Alkan record, which absolutely blew me away. And the piece we're going to hear had such a mesmeric power over me. I can't even describe it, just the hairs on the back of my neck. These big chords that are like ocean waves just washing over you again and again and again with growing power. It's really an extraordinary piece of music. was a prelude by Charles Valentin Alcan from his set of 25 preludes, Opus 31, number 5 in D major, played by Olli Mustonen. And the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, the film director, Anthony Fabian, who, as I've said, you may know because of the immense success of his feature film, Skin. 
And Anthony, I'm just keen to hear a little bit about your background now. Let's just do something chronological. How did you get into this whole, I see um, you were born in San Francisco, but brought up in Mexico City, Paris and London. You're a graduate of the film and television school in London. How did you get into this magical business of music and Film. Uh, well, sorry to correct you there, but I'm a graduate of the of the UCLA Film and Television School ah, okay. in California. Uh, but I, d- I have um, I did settle in London in my early twenties, and I have been there ever since. Uh, but as somebody very charmingly put it here, I don't have a hectically British accent <laughs> because um, I've grown up in so many different places and have spent time in so many different places. Um, funnily enough, in in the UK, people often ask me if I'm South African, which which sort of puts a smile on my face. So, yes, funny, mixed-up international background. But having studied film in Los Angeles, I lived and worked there for a total of six years and did many different things there. I, I worked in distribution, I worked in production, I worked in development, and I went back to the UK where I had been at school during my teenage years uh, one Christmas, and decided that I I felt more at home in the UK than I did in America, and I also felt much more creatively stimulated by Britain than I did by California. And being very young, I needed still to charge my creative batteries. I didn't have enough that I could exploit in Los Angeles, which is what that place is very good for. Yes. So I came back to the UK, and there wasn't much of a film industry going on at that time. And I wanted to get more directing experience because by then I decided I wanted to be a director, having done some acting in my earlier years and some writing. Uh, so I did a theatre directing course, and from that I found work in opera as an assistant director. There was a very good training path within the opera world. You started as an assistant, and straight away you were working with the understudies, should anything go wrong. And, you know, singers' voices are very vulnerable. And, you know, the merest problem there, they will go off. Although their fee depends on them performing. They won't be paid <laughs> unless they perform. So um, they'll do anything to avoid that. But you do, as an assistant, straight away work as a director. And that was very, very valuable for me. And was opera an interest of yours at that stage? Or did it become an interest as a result of necessity, really? The wonderful thing about uh, university education in America is that it's not as specialized as the British educational system. So when you, even though I read, as it were, film and television, that was my major, I was encouraged to do many other subjects. And music was a huge passion of mine from a very early age. And I did an opera course at UCLA, which got me hooked on opera, became oh, okay. interested. And I, I've i always had a great passion for voices, as you will hear from the selection I've made. Okay. And um, did you ever play an instrument, or was it was it voice and...? I started with the trombone. I, I don't know why I chose that instrument, and I soon decided that it didn't really have much of a repertoire that interested me, so I went on to the piano, uh, which I enjoyed very much. Um, but I was never that brilliant at reading multiple staves, and so... I then went on to the cello, uh, which I started at university, and being a single, a single line instrument, I, I could cope with that, and I absolutely loved the cello. It sounds to me as though music is just as important to you almost as film, both hugely creative genres, aren't they, in, in every possible respect, actually? Yes. In fact, when I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker, I modeled myself a little bit on the filmmakers who worked in a classical music realm, so people like Ken Russell, who made many wonderful classical music film, films for the BBC and later feature films about composers and so on, and Tony Palmer, who also made wonderful classical music films. Unfortunately, by the time I came of age, classical music became more and more specialized, elitist, and a smaller audience taste. And films being very expensive, there seemed to be less and less opportunity to make films with a classical music basis. So my my filmmaking has broadened enormously outside of that box, but classical r- music remains a passion. But that's not still a case, is it? The classical music is now more acceptable or more there in the film world, or is it still the situation as when you were coming of age? I have to say I think it's getting worse. Oh, do you? Um, oh, really? Um, it's that's more and more difficult. The BBC itself 
has relegated classical music to, you know, BBC Four, the smallest, least watched channel. BBC Radio Three is always sort of under threat. No, unfortunately, it's becoming more and more difficult. If you think about it, even when I was growing up, you had those great opera films by Joseph Losey and Franco Rossi and Peter Brook. When was the last time you saw an opera film? So my intention is to become a hugely successful feature film director, so that I can、um, <laughs> I can be allowed to make a sort of less popular or less money making opera film at some point. Okay, now I think your next choice of music、um, is operatic, but there's the connection there with opera, as well as with South Africa. So tell me why you've chosen this particular piece from La Boheme. When I first heard the story of Sandra Lang, which became the subject of of my f- first feature film, Skin, I came out to South Africa in order to familiarise myself with the country and to get to know it better. And I came to Cape Town, and a friend of mine was one of the、um, musical directors of the Spear Music Festival,、um, and he invited me to come out there and have lunch. And I I went to a rehearsal of their Carmen. And the Spear Music Festival, for the first time that year, had invited、uh, singers from the townships to perform opera and music theatre. And for for many of them, it was the first time they were performing this music. So it was a an interesting social experiment. And I remember going to that rehearsal, and just the tingle factor of those incredible voices and one of the choruses from Carmen. Hair stood up on the back of my neck, and it brought me to tears almost immediately. And I said to Steve Higgins, my friend, I think there's an extraordinary documentary to be made about what you're doing here. He then introduced me to Charles Hazelwood, who was the conductor, and、uh, Mark Dornford May, the director, and I persuaded them that I was not going to make some sort of stitch-up job like. The BBC's wonderful series called The House.、Uh, I was really <laughs> going to do something very positive about what was happening here in in the new South Africa, and I stayed on for six weeks to shoot that documentary. And in the cast, there was this young, slightly shy singer called Pumeza Machikiza, and I remember Steve saying to me, "This is one you should be watching out for." That was the year that. Pauline Malifane was discovered by Mark and by the, the the greater world, and she she went from the chorus to playing Carmen, which is such a great story. But Pumeza was singing in the Carmen and also in West Side Story, and in the Mysteries,、uh, which were the three productions that year. And she clearly had something very special. We then remained in touch. She came to London to the Royal College of Music. She was then chosen for the Young Artist Program at Covent Garden. And she then became a house soprano at、uh, Stuttgart. And through this time, we always kept a thread of connection. Until eventually, one day on a Facebook post, I saw that she had an album out by Decca Records, my old right. company. Her debut album, in fact.、Um, and I wrote and said, "What's going on?" And、uh, she told me this extraordinary journey that she'd been on. So I'm very, very proud to include Pumeza、uh, amongst the selection. I've chosen. Uh, piece by Puccini, which、uh, she's performed many, many times on stage, Mimi, and I think she sings this really stunningly. Thank you. 
voice, I think I can safely say, of Pomezza Machikiza and that aria from Act 3 of La Boheme by Puccini with the State Orchestra in Stuttgart on her new Decca release, her debut album, uh, the second choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Anthony Fabian, who is a film director, an award-winning director of feature films, documentaries, commercials and shorts, but who has also become very attached to opera, which I'm pleased about. And the Township Opera, which you were mentioning slightly earlier, that really got you into the whole scene musically and politically in South Africa, as you were saying, didn't it? It was my first opportunity to be immersed in South African culture. I was here for uh, six, seven weeks, um, admittedly in Stellenbosch, which is a particular kind of bubble, but, but working with singers from townships all over the country, which was a wonderful introduction uh, to the greater part of this country and to those contrasts, all of which have fed into my work on the Good Hope documentary that I'm working on now. And Township Opera was interesting because it was not only the first documentary ever shown on a new arts and culture channel at that time called BBC Four, which That's was television, just television, obviously, not Radio Four. Correct, correct. Yes, BBC yes. Four was a new television channel which opened up when the digital age began and more channels became available to people in the UK. And it also was the first document of the company that went on to make Ukarman Ekailicha, which was a Golden Bear award-winning film. Yes, that the, did very well, didn't yes, it? Internationally. Yes. So it was the start of many things, uh, as well as the first documentary that I ever made and the first film that I made in this country. Well, it's interesting that you still want to be here. You're still working hard now on Good Hope. We'll talk a little bit about politics a little later, but I want to... You mentioned slightly earlier that Decker had asked you to do a film on Oli Mustanen, and I, there's a list here. I'm going to drop some names that you've done profiles on Pavarotti, Cecilia Bartoli, Joshua Bell, Angela Giorgio, Jean-Yves Thibaudet, René Fleming, uh, Richard Egar, John Tavener, the composer... It's a bit of a who's who, and this must be extremely stimulating and interesting for you to work with these people. Yeah, no, I was incredibly lucky to be able to cut my teeth as a filmmaker making music videos and profiles of these extraordinary performers and singers. And, of course, it fed my passion for the voice and for opera. But I think I also understood them quite well because I had worked as an assistant director and director of opera for about five years before I jumped off the opera bandwagon and onto the filmmaking uh, into the filmmaking world and so I was a good translation service if you like between the classical music world and the film world having quite an in-depth knowledge and experience of classical music and that's particularly important when it comes to editing because the rhythm of classical music is completely different from the rhythm of pop music for instance or the ordinary rhythm of speech or ordinary filmmaking. So you have to have an understanding of music in order to be able to edit music films. I think that's very interesting what you just said because I think that doesn't occur to many people and I include myself in that. It hadn't occurred to me that editing a classical film or a film of a classical performance or even an interview with a classical artist would require a different breathing space, a different phrasing, for want of a better word. Am I on the right path? Absolutely, and rhythmically you had to be absolutely spot on as well. So, for example, when we did the Fritz Kreisler piece with Joshua Bell, which you can still find on YouTube somewhere, it was Tambourin Chinois, which was a kind of chinoiserie uh, little fantasy, and it was of enormous speed, and the cutting style was absolutely, had to, had to match that speed. 
and had to be very precise with the notes. And I remember getting Joshua into the cutting room on the last day just to verify that we'd got the cutting points exactly right. And mm-hmm. because he's such an acute musician, he was able to correct a frame here, a frame there. Uh, okay. But the cutting points were very much based on the music. And these are big names. Did you find they were easy to work with, not too many egos? Classical music performers tend to be very, very disciplined. I know that opera singers often have this terrible reputation of being divas, and Ang- Angela Gheorghiu in particular, uh, I had been warned it was going to be disrespectful and late and difficult, but she and I got on absolutely brilliantly. I never had the slightest problem with her. Similarly, uh, Cecilia Bartoli is one of God's most wonderful creatures, <laughs> just a complete joy to work with. Renee Fleming, again, a total professional, very charming, very lovely. So I couldn't have been luckier to have had this wonderful time to make films with these stunning performers. I'm really enjoying, Anthony, the fact that classical music is such an important part of your life, opera and classical music. And I'm right in saying, aren't I, that you, well, your life partner was a very well-known conductor, Christopher Hogwood, who in many ways spearheaded a, a period instrument movement And that must have been very interesting for you as well to sort of, how can I say, enhance your love of music and your interest in music. Absolutely. I met Chris Hogwood when I was 20 years old, still a student at UCLA, and he was giving masterclasses there. And as I mentioned earlier, I was often in the music department, and I just happened to wander into a masterclass that he was giving with singers. And I remember thinking how rude he was to the singers, but also how impressive he was um, and how precise. And we ended up bumping each other into each other on campus and having a coffee and starting this great conversation. And uh, so there began really one of the biggest influences in my life. And, you know, as often happens when you're in a relationship with somebody, you immerse yourself in their world. And particularly because I was so young, I did immerse myself for the first two or three years of our partnership in his world and really got to understand it very, very well until I decided, well, that's enough of that and I think I'm going to now go and explore my own world, which was <laughs> filmmaking. But but no, it was a massive influence and um, my association with Decca Records, I think they came to me because he had been a great Decca Records star. He made over 400 recordings that's for right. them. Gosh. So there was already an association there. Now, I see that the next piece of music is from Skin, so I want to return to that. It's been a kind of feature of our chat because it was so important in your life with its 22 awards. Um, Tell me a little bit about what we're going to hear. This is music from the soundtrack of Skin, one of your first films. So um, this soundtrack is particularly interesting. It was written by Ellen Muddiman, and it was her first film score, although she's a hugely uh, experienced composer of pop music as well as film music we collaborated on some of my short films Um, in fact I think she wrote the music for all of my short films uh, after Bach and Variations and so we knew we had a good a good working relationship and what we discussed with the score of skin is we wanted a hybrid of of African and Western music and instruments uh, because Sandra herself was a hybrid of African and Western mm. genes. Um, and Ellen completely immersed herself in the sound world of South Africa. I think the track that you're going to hear is very convincingly South African. It's sung in Zulu. The singer is Miriam Stockley, who is a South African singer. And I'll be interested to hear whether your listeners think she's white or black, because I think she rather cleverly uh, pulls the wool over our eyes. <laughs>
That's music from the soundtrack of Skin. And you heard there a piece called Let Freedom Reign, another choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, Anthony Fabian, who is the director of Skin, his first feature film. And there's a significance to that name, isn't it? Because that's the title music, is it? From the it's film? the opening music from the film, and it it's depicting the first free elections in this country, which is the name, hence the name of the title. Oh, okay. Um, and the film uh, was entirely uh, South African cast, except for Sam Neill and Sophia Canedo. As you can imagine, with a fairly substantial budget, you need some international names, and it's always a big wrangle whether you why 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 have foreigners playing South Africans? But it was really essential for us. But we were lucky enough to have Alice Kricher amongst the cast as Sandra's mother, and of course she's native-born South African who had a, an international has had an international career, a very wonderful one. And I remember saying to Alice. Um, because her natural speaking voice has become very English, um, even more than mine, I think. <laughs> and um, I remember saying to her, she, she had to have an, an Afrikaans-inflected English accent for the character, Eastern Transvaal, as it, as, uh, as it was then. And I said to her, please, would you speak with that accent all the time when we're not filming? I want Sam, Neil, and Sophie Okanedo to hear that so that they can immerse themselves in that accent and it will help them and she said I, I'm afraid I can't do that for you because that way of speaking is so associated in, in my mind with something that I found uh, hateful politically the Nationalist Party yeah. that I simply can't inhabit that character constantly I'll do it while we're filming but I can't do it off screen I'm sorry and I respected that of course and uh, I do understand what she felt mm -hmm. That is an interesting story, and you can imagine it, there's another example of the, well, of the psychological impact of apartheid. And the actress Sophie Okanedo, where did she come from? She was Oscar-nominated for Hotel Rwanda, oh. um, and she was also in Stephen Freer's Dirty Pretty Things. She's gone on to play Winnie Mandela for the BBC. And various, uh, she she was recently won a Tony Award for A Raisin in the Sun on Broadway. She's a huge star, and she's half Nigerian, half British, English, Jewish, in fact. Um, Hotel Rwanda was filmed in South Africa as well, and she has a great love of this country, and she's a very sensitive, very fine actress. I should mention, by the way, that there will be a screening of Skin on the 22nd of February at the Holocaust Museum as part of a big tour to do with Nazi experiments on race. So it's opening that that tour. Oh, really? And oh. it's open to the public. So if anyone hasn't seen Skin and would like to, they will be able to do that. When did Skin get released? I'm trying to think. When was it released? It was released in this country in 2010, but there seemed to be constant requests for it. it okay. it's, it's sort of timeless. Remind us of the dates at the Holocaust Museum. Twenty uh, second of, of February. Yes, but there are there are there's a, there's a national tour, so it's going to be shown in many parts of the country. Okay, thanks for telling us that, um, Anthony. We were talking earlier about profiles you did on musicians and how you worked with them, but I was also interested. We're doing a bit of name dropping now in your feature of uh, British legends of stage and screen. I mentioned some of the big names there, the wonderful Sir Christopher Lee with that magnificent voice, who apparently also wanted to be a singer. There's a clip of him on YouTube singing the Mikado song, the Gilbert Sullivan Mikado song. But what was that all about, the British legends of stage and screen? Um, I'll just add to your anecdote about Christopher Lee. He, uh, he met Jussi Björling in Sweden. They went drinking and singing together, and Jussi Björling told him that he actually had a voice and could become an opera singer, but he simply didn't have the resources to train. Oh, really? So he went back and, and he became a, a contract player at rank, 
studios in the UK and went on from there to to be a very famous Dracula. What brought that about was I was very conscious of the fact that it's important to preserve people's memories and that there were actors with lifelong careers who had in some way faded out of the light whose memories should be preserved and of course the people we chose Sir Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi and Claire Bloom they all continue to have careers and are still in the limelight but people like Glenda Jackson for example hadn't been seen for 10 years mm. so it was a wonderful way of of doing a survey of these great actors lives uh, Michael York for example who was he in, also sort of faded in the yes, after a spectacular career a spectacular career so just you know before it's too late yes. I wanted to and preserve are, an archive are these films available absolutely they're certainly on DVD, and I don't know. I don't know if they're available for download, but um, quite possible. They are out there. Yes, they're out there. Okay. And didn't you get a famous ex-South African to do the narration? I worked with Sue McGregor, who's there a famous uh, broadcaster and a most wonderful voice, and she's very passionate about the arts and has done many, many interviews. So yes, she did the the narration for us. Gosh, what a voice! <laughs> Anthony, another piece of music. Now, I'm interested, actually, there's there's clearly a story behind this by Handel, a duet from Ronaldo, because we mentioned earlier that Christopher Hogwood was your partner for many, many years, and he's conducting this recording, isn't he? So this was um, Chris Hogwood's recording of Rinaldo, which was Handel's first Italian opera for the London stage. It was for the Queen's Theatre, which then became the King's Theatre in the Haymarket. And... Italian opera became all the rage and Handel was all the rage and it was a really starry uh, recording that that Chris made with Cecilia Bartoli, uh, David Daniels in the title role, Luba Organosova. Organosova. I always get that the wrong way around. Actually, I only (laughs) can't say it because her her nickname is Luba Orgasmsova, which is a very unfair (laughs) nickname, I think. Of course, we're all going to remember that. Yeah. And uh, Gerald Finley, wonderful, wonderful cast. And I was around when the recording was made. And uh, there's a funny anecdote. Well, not so funny, actually. David Daniels lost his voice and had to cancel his sessions. So they went ahead with the recording. And this duet that we're going to hear, he had to overdub a few months later. But it's really quite remarkable how beautifully harmonious they are and it's a duet from the first act of the opera it's a very as usual with these Handel pieces a very complex story of love and betrayal it's set during the first crusades and these are the young lovers the knight and his beloved and this is the kind of happy duet before they're split apart I must just say that uh, it is for someone who may not know that David Daniels is a countertenor yes so here you will hear him Yes, And I should mention that the part was originally written for a famous castrato singer, mm-hmm. and it was only in the 20th century that countertenors began to play a role in opera when they started to take the roles that castrati had sung, because up until then only women, contraltos or altos, would play, would sing those parts on stage. Thank <laughs> you. 
Music by Handel from Ronaldo, that duet with Cecilia Bartoli and David Daniels, uh, with the orchestra conducted by Christopher Hogwood, the Academy of Ancient Music, and the choice of my guest, Anthony Fabian. We've had so much to talk about, Anthony, because of all these things that you've done, whether it's politics in South Africa, music, opera, British legends of stage and screen. But I think we've got to talk about your, your latest project, which yeah. is this feature documentary called Good Hope. So I know we touched on it earlier, but just perhaps explain a little bit what, what you're trying to achieve here. Well, having made Skin, which documented the last 30 years of apartheid, and having then come back to this country many times subsequently, I wanted to make a film that talked about South Africa's present and future, if possible, to look into the crystal ball. And my motivation had to do with the fact that there was a strange disconnect for me between the way people talk about this country and how I feel when I'm here. In other Do words, you mean people away from the country or South Africans talking about their own country or both? Well, shockingly, both. Oh. Um, people here talked very negatively about the country and how things were going downhill and things aren't as good as they used to be, etc. And people abroad also spoke very negatively. In fact, I felt that South Africa was getting a very bad rap. And whenever I asked people, how do you think it's going to go? They would always look terribly, terribly gloomy. But that wasn't the impression I was getting when I was coming here. So Good Hope is an exploration of, first of all, who's right? Is it actually all going to the dogs? Or does this country have a brighter future? I fall, fall very firmly in the latter camp. I believe that South Africa does have a wonderful future and that there is this strange bipolar nature, either euphoria or despair about what's happening in this country. So, for example, the recent ANC elections were very, very tense because I think the results of that could have really had a terrifically bad impact on this country or, as I believe they will have, a much more positive impact on this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I've been saying for the last year and a half is that South Africa does have a brighter future. Very few people have believed me. I think people are starting to believe me more, and I would like all those who agree with me to join forces and help me make this project. And uh, we're still seeking funding for the film. Uh, we've got about two-thirds of the funding in place, but we still need more. And film is an incredibly important ambassador for a country. It is how people outside the country view the country, and it's also how people inside the country view themselves. And this project is very much a confidence-building exercise for South Africans because I think that confidence has been very much dented by the terrible news of the last eight, ten years. Yes. And stories of corruption and racketeering and crime and state capture, all of these things have a very negative impact on the, the opinions that people have of this country. But things are really turning around now. There's almost a second revolution happening. And there's that energy that South Africans have to make things better, particularly amongst the younger generation. That's the focus of the film, is essentially those born either with one foot in apartheid, one foot after, so they became adults after the end of apartheid, or they're born entirely free of the constraints of apartheid. And that's the generation that I'm mostly focusing on. When you look at those people, you listen to what they have to say, you see their perspective, you can only feel hope and optimism. And if people did want to help, you said you were looking for funding, you have an opportunity now to say something. Well, we have a Facebook page on Elysian Films which people can refer to and they can easily come and find me that way. And we had a crowdfunding campaign which was successful. We met our target, but we're now looking to find the balance of our funds. And essentially, people in whose interests it is to tell a more positive story about this country, those are the people we would like to join forces with. And there are many wealthy people in this country who I feel don't necessarily support or put back in the bigger picture. Many people support on a micro level perhaps a school or they put their uh, domestic workers' children through uh, school, etc. And that's a wonderful thing. But to paint a picture of an entire country for the eyes of the world is a very important exercise. And we need all the support we can get. Very convincing you are, Mr. Fabian, but thank you, and I absolutely agree. Just give us the website address again. So the website is elysianfilms.com. 
And that's spelled E-L-Y-S-I-A-N. That's right. There's also a Twitter account, Elysian Films, which you can find, or a Facebook page. So okay. if you're on social media at all, you should be able to track us down. <laughs> well, Anthony, it's been fascinating to talk to you on a number of levels, whether you were talking about um, famous actors like Sir Christopher Lee, uh, Joshua Bell, Rene Fleming, or Skin. It sounds as though you have every reason to be positive about a number of things, and we need in this country positiveness like you. So keep coming back. Keep uh, keeping us on the world stage. With the what are you going pleasure. to end with now? That's the big question. Well, having made this selection largely of classical music, I thought I would turn to another passion of mine, which is uh, jazz, and Nina Simone in particular. And I know that this wonderful station plays a lot of jazz as well. So I thought we could be seen out in the very positive, Nina Simone in a very positive mode, <laughs> when she was very much in love with her husband, and my baby just cares for me. Anthony Fabian, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. of note on fine music radio was proudly brought to you by peter turin productions F-M-R.